Welcome to Jeopardites. My name is Lakshtata and you are listening to the JLF podcast. I have um now that we, we this is episode 59 and after having done uh enough of these and through the other podcast uh that I host with Launchora as well, I've I've had the opportunity to talk to some really amazing storytellers uh over the past couple of years and I can tell you without even a little bit of doubt that this conversation that you're about to hear uh, is my favorite. And I don't, I don't know how to top it, and I'm not going to try to top it. Uh, my guest in this episode of Jeffrey Bites is Pico Ayer, who is the nicest human being I've spoken to. Uh, and he just happens to be an extremely talented storyteller. And I would, if you haven't heard of Pico, I would just go on YouTube, type in Pico Ayer, you'll see his TED Talks, all of them are just gems to listen to, and you'll see his interview with Oprah, and when I saw that interview with Oprah, I realized that I'm about to talk to a person who has been interviewed by the world's greatest interviewer, so no pressure for me, I'm just going to listen to this man. Uh, tell me his uh, story and my goal walking into this conversation was to really not have a plan and uh, just hear him talk about how he writes his books, why he uh, wanted to tell stories about his travels, tell stories about the people uh, that he's met over the years. So the most candid conversation uh, uh, I could ask for and just a truly um, a delight, really, uh, having spoken to him. So you're about to hear me be uh, a little bit giddy uh, as I as I talk to Pico, and I try to hide it, but it truly was amazing. And your the conversation required absolutely no editing because uh, Pico was just fantastic. Every word he says is, is it, it sounds like he's writing while he's talking. Uh, and I end it with a quote from him, and so that's 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 at the end. But uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Pico will be, um, I mean, just small things that I haven't even told you that the man has written over a dozen books, has two books coming out. Uh, one is launching at JLF and at the British Library called Autumn Light, which is a story about his experiences uh, really in in Japan and then another one coming out this fall which I'm gonna get for sure called the beginner's guide to Japan so check those out go on YouTube uh, after you listen to this you're going to want to listen to him uh, tell tell his stories so uh, here is episode 59 of of Jepper bites and uh, my conversation with Bikoyer <laughs> million miles now, right? You're, you're, you're way past a million miles. 
I'm afraid even with United Airlines, I'm closing in on two million miles. Oh, wow. So yes. So you've seen you've seen so much, and you've like writing about traveling and and about the world is 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 literally been your job description for for decades. So I wanted I was curious uh, when you do happen to go into you know a party or or just a gathering and. It's full of people that some of them may not know who you are. They may they may not know your history and your background, and you run into a stranger and they you know like let's say you're having a glass of wine, you're at a wine tasting and people just start talking, and they ask you that casual question of oh what do you do you know what what's what's your story, how do you tackle that answer when when a stranger asks you that? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure I know who I am, and certainly <laughs> most people I meet don't know who I am. Um. Maybe I would say, just as you were implying, that I'm a lifelong grateful tourist. Uh, and for the whole of my life, I've never really had a fixed home, which means that everywhere I go is somewhat home, but always interesting. I don't feel I can take anything for granted. So maybe what I would tell them is, if they ask, where do you come from? The inevitable question, I'd right. say, well, I was born in England to parents from India, and we moved to California when I was seven. But I can't say I'm from India, because I've never lived there. I don't speak any of its languages. No one would say I look like a traditional Englishman. And even though I've been officially based in America for 50 years or more, uh, I'll never feel American. So I've I've really become this kind of global creature since I was a little kid, uh, and I've flourished on it. And I think if you, if everywhere is foreign to you, everywhere is fascinating to you. So as you were saying, mm. I've always taken notes on places. I've always been able to bring an outsider's eye, even to England or America or or India, and I've tried to make um, a living off of that. And um, so I suppose for the last thirty years. If they asked what I do, I would say I spend half my life wandering around trying to collect experiences and, and new emotions and discoveries. And the rest of the other half of my life, pretty much um, in monasteries or in almost monastic settings, making sense of uh, what I've seen or trying to convert experience into meaning. And I think that's just an extreme form of what everybody does, breathing right. in and breathing out, going out into the world so you know what the world is up to and coming back to a quiet place uh, to try to turn it into uh, a pattern. Hmm. And so the whole traveling bit, you, you've uh, talked about how for you being on a plane is, 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 is very trivial. It's, it's the same as like, you know, calling a friend, like just, uh, how would you has in those all those two million miles or so of of travel is there a particular story uh of something that happened while you were on a plane where i guess is there something that 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 stands out that it happened either internally you know within you or or externally around you you know you met someone up there that you you kind of remember to be a standout experience Hmm. Well, internally, <laughs> a lot is happening to me on every flight, starting with jet lag. And yeah. I've written a lot <laughs> about jet lag and explored it because it's really this foreign state that no human had experienced uh, until 
my parents' generation, maybe, or right, really my right. generation. Uh, and it's not a drug state, it's not a dream state, but it puts you into this alternative consciousness. Um, when you mention chance encounters, I instantly flash on finding myself next to A.R. Rahman on a flight from um, wow. Berlin to Munich just last year, actually. But I think to put this in a bigger perspective, and you were saying two million miles, I'm probably up to five or six million now. It's close to two million oh, right. just two on United with, Airlines. Okay, yes. right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, when I define myself, I often think of how I went to school by plane from the age of nine. So uh, every three months I was leaving my parents' house, getting alone into a plane and flying over the North Pole to England to go to school and then flying over the North Pole to come back. And um, I, in, in honor of that, I once even spent two weeks living in and around Los Angeles Airport <laughs> uh, because that sent, seemed to me almost my home. But in terms of midair experiences, of course, I've, I've had so many interesting encounters uh, at 37,000 feet. But I think really what stands out to me is just the exotic adventure of being up in the air when I was nine years old. And mm -hmm. you can imagine for a kid, you're suddenly in this playground. You're suddenly seeing the world from five miles up as few people had seen it uh, before in the late 1960s. And you're not being ruled by the laws of any nation. So my parents were very, very kind to me, but they lived and still live in this house on top of a mountain. So there wasn't much for a nine-year-old kid to do. Mm -hmm. And what was waiting me at the other end was a 15th century boarding school, all boys, where we weren't allowed to go out of bounds. So it was more or less an incarceration in prison. <laughs> but for the 11 hours of the flight between Los Angeles Airport and London, I was a free little kid. I could have as much Coca-Cola as I wanted. Right. Uh, the stewardesses were dancing attention on me, as they were known then, cabin attendants, because I was what's known as an unaccompanied minor. So they'd bring me everything I wanted. Mm. I could put in my headphones and see um, uh, a, a movie, which would soon be forbidden for three months when I got to school. And I never forget that when I was 10 years old, I was in the back of economy as this little boy alone, and there was a muscular person next to me. And he told me, that he had fought against Cassius Clay, later to be Muhammad Ali. He told yeah. me all these amazing stories. Whether they were true or not didn't really matter. Um, for a little boy, it was the ultimate kind of treasure house. And I remember Michael Ondaatje wrote a, a beautiful book, Cat's Table, about the adventures he had traveling by boat from his native Sri Lanka to England. So for me, the the, the plane was really um, the the equivalent. And the other thing I always remember is that I would be flying back to school in April and almost always on the flight, there were several English technicians who had the previous night won an Academy Award. So they were brandishing these gold statues. Oh, wow. A lot of cameramen <laughs> greeting them when they we touched down in London. And again, for a little boy, it couldn't have been more exciting. One time when I was that same age, as I was checking in, I was right behind Raquel Welch, who was the great sort of heartthrob poster woman of the mm. time. So um, I think it was those early times that really gave me the sense that being between places could be even more exotic than arriving at a place. I had a when when you were talking about that idea that you know in that in the plane is when you were really free. I had a when I moved back to India about five years ago, it was um, 
it was like coming back. I went at 17, I came back at 24. So mm -hmm. I left as a child to my parents, but I came back as an adult to me. But to them, it was just the child coming back, you know? Yes. So I was living with them and I remember getting into my car and going somewhere was the only, like in the car traveling from in, in the Delhi traffic. Mm. That was my favorite thing to do because it was my, my time to myself again. Because there was no family, there was no, you know, cousins or, or just anyone. It was just me driving and I would love traffic because it meant I had more time to myself because it was that, that in between that transit time that felt like that it's just, just Laksh by himself, you know? Beautiful. I love that. Exactly. And I think people often talk about travel, but what I'm interested in is transport, you know, that yeah. sense of inner transformation. And exactly as you said, uh, that takes place in the least likely spots, mm. but where, where you're n under nobody's jurisdiction. <laughs> right. So I, I do want to talk about the, the J Japan focused books uh, in a bit, but before we get into the, the content of the books, I do want to know that, uh, I mean, you're, you're up to, what, 16, 16 books by now? Maybe, yes, roughly. So over the years, and you, you've been publishing for, for, I think, since the 90s, right? The first book was uh, early Since 90s? the middle of the 80s. No, middle, middle of, the, of the 80s, actually, yes. So before I was born. <laughs> you've, you've, been, you've been a published author for longer than I've been alive. <laughs> the... Over the years, when you're when you're writing, has um, do you find yourself following some sort of a, a I guess a, a ritual when it comes to your your writing schedule or something, or do you find it being different across uh, each book? No, I would say I'm a fanatical slave to my own habits. So you know, just as you were saying, I've been a self-employed writer, which is more or less the same as an unemployed person for <laughs> 33 years now, ever since 1986. And so, as soon as I left an office at the age of 29, I laid down this pattern for myself, and it hasn't really changed. So I wake up, I have breakfast, I make a eight-foot commute to my desk. I spend the first five hours of every day at my desk. M every other day, that's excruciating. Um, but half the days, it's a great adventure. Uh, I take two long walks around the neighborhood, and that's really when I do my best writing. Uh, I come back to my flat. I make a cup of tea, very strong, gather some sweet Japanese tangerines, sit out on my terrace, and for one hour, uh, completely give myself over to a very serious novel or an important work of nonfiction. And that's one of my great conversations uh, of the day. And then at the end of all that, um, I take care of my emails and I go to the health club. Um, I do all my writing by hand. I try to make sure there's never um, a computer in the same room as me when I'm writing because it would be too big a temptation. And you and I were talking a few minutes ago before we began the official part of the conversation about how I've never used a cell phone. Right. Uh, so I think those rituals, good or bad, have really been my anchor for more than 30 years. But with each book, I try to write it in as different a way as possible from uh, the previous book so that it'll, it'll be a fresh adventure. So it's almost like a pianist writing in different keys. And if I've just written a piece in C major, I want to write the next piece in D minor or right. something radically different. So the content of the books, I hope, is entirely different. But the framework of my habits remains uh, 
pretty much the same. You know, I uh, this is something that I've I've always been curious about because of just my own internal thinking. But uh, so I've, I've I started writing really around the age of nineteen, when mm-hmm. I that's when I started taking at least fiction writing a bit seriously. And one thing that now I've been writing for for ten years is that I I I often wonder if I would be the same person if I didn't start writing, uh, and that that that's not just about. Because even, you know, for me, I feel like all my fiction is still coming from the person who I am inside. So there is a lot of internalization happening, even subconsciously when I'm writing fiction. So I guess I guess my my question is that do you. Do you think you would be the same person you are if you didn't, you know, start writing or, or if you weren't writing at all? I do very much. I mean, for me, writing is an indulgence and a pastime, and it's like playing ping pong. I play ping pong every day in uh, my apartment in Japan with my elderly neighbors, and writing for me is the same. It's like waking up and walking into a cabin in the woods just to see uh, what adventure you can go on that day. Mm. But I don't take it too seriously, and writing these days seems so much at the margin of most people's lives that for me it's almost like creating um, a, a ship in a bottle or doing some kind of hobby that's entirely engrossing and one hopes illuminating for the person doing it but uh, nobody much in the world is is so excited about seeing the ships in the bottle that you <laughs> have made um, yeah. and so it's 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 the way I amuse and entertain and indulge myself but if if I couldn't write um, I think I would be entirely the same person but less reflective and without that luxury of spending five days alone processing my experience and gathering my thoughts and actually it it ties in a little bit with your last question because I think with every I I see writing as a form of acting. And each time I embark on a new book, I've given myself a new script and a fresh part to play. And I think every actor knows that he has to find that corner in himself that corresponds to King Lear or a mafiosi gangster or a romantic comedy lead or Hamlet or whatever it is. So with each book, I'm trying to draw on something Uh, from a different part of myself, but the process of learning the lines and being an actor is really um, very much the same. And I think an actor is much the same person, even if he's just come off uh, playing Othello or Macbeth. And I'm probably much the same person, whether I've just written a really serious book about the Dalai Lama or some fanciful novel about uh, Islam. Hmm. So, so actually, uh, building on that, when you when you are in, like you say, you 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 write by hand, and you're do you, when you're writing, are you also then self-editing a little bit, or do you let that that be the editor hat you put on put on later, or do you completely turn over everything to the editor and you're just the writer? Well, uh, like any writer, like you too, I think, I I spend a lot of my time revising Mm. and uh, I'll write the same piece again and again, the way um, a a painter would make 15 sketches of the same Mm. subject and put them up on the wall and come back to it three months later and see which one really sings to him then. So I, I do exactly the same thing. If I was writing up this conversation we would have now, I would write a version 
10 minutes from now, I'd write a version a week from now, I'd write (laughs) a version a month from now and then see which is going to be most interesting um, to the reader. I think maybe the other thing I should say is for for these last 33 years, I've more or less made a living by writing journalism. And I've sort of made a life by writing books, which are mostly for myself. So when I'm writing journalism, of course, there are myriad editors waiting to get my piece and to tear it apart. And uh, (laughs) in any piece of journalism, you have to be conscious of the many people on the other end uh, who are waiting to read what you've written. It's an act of communication. When I'm writing books for myself, I see it more as an act of self-expression. So I pretend the editor's not there and the reader's not there. And I'm thinking something through to myself. You know, as a fellow writer, you have to think it through to yourself in a way that will seem appealing and, and involving to a reader. You have to find that common spot where something deep in your experience rhymes with something in her experience. But really, when I'm doing that, I'm not thinking of the reader at all. I have to just be in the confessional, as it were, and and try to get out something that's really intimate and private to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, shifting to... One of the one of the reasons why we're, we're I'm able to be able to talk to you, which I'm 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 grateful for, is because of is because of JLF, the Jaipur Literature Festival, and you've been to the Jaipur Festival uh, more than once, right? The the one in Jaipur. Yeah, three times so far, and and as as your question suggests, I'm doing three Jaipur Festival events around um, the West this summer, but I've been yes. to Jaipur itself three times for the festival. You're, yes. So I, I know that you're, you're part of two panels coming up, uh, one, one, one in London. And, uh, I think that's just in, you're heading there in two weeks or so. That's and, right. uh, then you've got another one at Belfast and both of them, I believe are, are, uh, about traveling, uh, and multiple people are, are on the panels. I'm, I'm curious to know what is it that keeps you coming i mean you're, you're you've been speaking uh at 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 events and and festivals uh for for your most of your career what is it about jlf that you think uh keeps you coming back to to the festival yes and just before i answer that i'll, I'll point out actually both in london and belfast uh, this month i'll also be um doing one-on-one conversations about two recent books in, on Japan, and then I'm going to JLF Toronto in September. Oh, and maybe if, yeah. yeah, I might even get to JLF Adelaide in 2020, if the gods are kind. But uh-huh. in terms of really going to the, the mothership, uh, the, the festival in Jaipur itself, of course, uh, Jaipur already is one of the most romantic, exotic cities on earth. It's where I took my Japanese wife for our honeymoon, and there's no other literary festival that can offer candlelit palaces and elephants and dancing girls and the parties that you meet at that festival of course it's also an enormous delight to get to meet 350 other speakers many of whom are my heroes and lifelong inspirations that i never get to meet otherwise uh last year when i was in jaipur i met a friend of mine with whom I'd studied when we were nine years old. And we've barely met since, but we spent a whole beautiful day together catching up on the last 50 years. But I would say the thing that really marks out Jaipur uh, as unique is the audiences. And I think every visitor from abroad registers that the 
people who come to the events there are so engaged, so alert. The questions are of a much higher level than you will meet elsewhere. The people who really love books. And when I'm signing books in Jaipur, there's a long line for every single writer. And almost everyone I talk to, they'll say, I'm an engineer, I'm a businessman, I've flown up from Bangalore to be here, I've come over from Singapore to be here. They will have read, it seems, almost every last piece I've written and almost mm -hmm. every last piece everyone has written. They'll ask me, you know, what do you think of page 200 uh, in Rohinton Mysteries, um, <laughs> A Fine Balance? How do you think Amitav Ghosh's second book compares with his sixth? And they're waiting for an answer and they have an answer of their own. And that is such a luxury that I don't encounter anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And as you know, you know, you and I are talking in California now and in the US and, and Europe, all that you hear about is how, as I was saying a minute ago, writers are endangered species, books seem like a thing of the past, uh, publishers are uh, shrinking and closing. Every time I go to India, more new publishers, more new magazines, more amazing writers. And whenever one's worried about the fate of reading, writing, and thinking, I tell my friends, go to India and you will get a jolt of inspiration. So I think India as a whole and South Asia as a, as a whole um, is keeping alive these things that are, are sadly getting uh, diminished here in the West. But the epicenter of all that, of course, is, is the Jaipur Festival, which has, I think, reminded everybody how you can construct a community of writers. The first time I was at the festival, and of readers, the first time I was at the festival was in 2009, when the festival was quite young. And it's been ex wonderful to see it explode and go global. But also, even in 2009, the Jaipur Festival was reminding us that invite a group of readers and writers into a common space and unexpectedness happens. And I was so thrilled that at a time when books seemed to be forgotten, um, Jaipur and other places were stressing them and drawing our attention to them and reviving what could have been um, a thinking practice. So um, I have many reasons to be grateful to Jaipur. And every time I'm there, I'm inspired by the level of engagement and excitement around books. Uh, one thing that I, when I attend uh, JLF or even when, um, when I was watching your TED Talks, I always wonder, maybe because it's, it's, that, uh, it's the writer in me or it's the overthinker, I always wonder what's going on through the, the speaker's heads before they get on stage. Mm. So I'm curious to know what is going on in your in your head before <laughs> you before you get on stage for let's say a TED talk. Well, as I was saying, um, I've been a self-employed writer living alone in a two-room apartment in Japan for 33 years now, and that's the that's the job I feel that. I was made to do because I studied nothing but literature for eight years uh, between the ages of 17 and 25, not even one hour of history or social studies or science or foreign languages. So all I really learned to do was read or write. And I became a writer um, as a way to just sit by myself in a very foreign place and see what came out. So it's been startling to find that the job of the writer now, which seems so private and mm. remote in those days, is very public now. And that a writer, a large part of a writer's job is to appear in public, which is not something I was trained or qualified right. <laughs> to do. But that's the reality of the times. And I think no one can complain 
about reality. We have to work with it. So as a rather solitary writer who likes being alone, I've realized that my job description now is to be out and about talking on a stage quite a bit. And so I mean, essentially a TED talk or um, a keynote address at Jaipur, uh, which I had to give last year, is a form of storytelling. And I, I prepare for those much the way I would for a piece of writing. Um, I'm thinking about how to construct a narrative that will hold an audience the way it would hold a reader, how to start unexpectedly, how to end in a way that will resonate with somebody, maybe one hopes for days after she's left that tent. Mm uh it's it's not the thing i would most want to be doing but i think any of us who are writers can learn things from public speaking that we can bring back to the writing just as writers in the past used to go to hollywood and write scripts often not very well but they would learn things about structure and economy mm -hmm. and communication from a film script that would make them better novelists so i try to see a ted talk or a, a speech for the jaipur festival as a way to learn storytelling talents or tricks that I can bring back into my writing. And, and I try to see them as versions of the same process so that they can enrich what I do for my passion, which is the, the writing part. Right, right. So let's, uh, let's jump into the books that we, we've, uh, we've both mentioned and, uh, I I know so one came out earlier this year that one's called Autumn Light and yes. Japan's season of Fire and Farewells and the next one's coming out in September I believe Yes right? that's right exactly Beginner's Guide to Japan which I am I'm definitely that might be my first purchase before I don't know I haven't read Autumn Light but I definitely want to read Beginner's Guide to Japan because I want to go there and I've been waiting to go there and I feel like being able to talk to you is my is my sign from the universe that I now <laughs> definitely that's the next destination. <laughs> definitely go there. Go there as quickly as possible because, as you know, Japan is flavor of the month, and yes. five million international visitors a few years ago was thirty one million last year, and wow. it could be forty million next year. So uh, more and more people are feeling that this is the place to see. Um, I would say that my book coming out in September, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, is more cunningly titled, even yes. if Autumn Light is a, is a, is a richer and deeper book. It's more book. romantic. <laughs> uh, yes, and much, yeah, much more soulful. But A Beginner's Guide sounds like it's going to be very practical. And for me, it was just such a fun enterprise. I was talking earlier about how I try to make the writing process fresh and exciting for me. And in this case, I spent 16 years writing two completely contradictory books at the same time for the same publisher to come out more or less in the same season. Wow. Uh, and I think that's partly because you know this, if, if, if you're very close to a person or a place, you will have contradictory feelings towards mm -hmm. her or towards it. And as you as you should. And your mother will say, how do you feel about Delhi? And you'll say one thing. And your girlfriend will say, how do you feel about Delhi? And six hours later, you'll say something entirely different. So I wanted to be true to that experience by writing these two contradictory books. And um, the first book that's called Autumn Light is really meant to give you a typical Japanese neighborhood in which, of course, the family stories and the dramas are very similar to the ones you would find in Rajasthan or in California. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to be a ch my chance, because I've lived 
in the same neighborhood for 26 years to let a Japanese neighborhood speak to you unmediated and remind you of how close Japan is to the rest of the world. The second book is more like a foreigner arriving in Japan for the first time last night and speaking back to Japan about everything that's so different there. Everything on the surface is opposite in Japan to India or California or England or anywhere. Um, and so the second book is about baseball games and Zen temples and love hotels and fashion. And it's a, it's a wide panorama of uh, titbits about different aspects of Japan, where the first book is a deeply focused story about myself and my Japanese family navigating the passages of life and autumn and death and birth. Um, so I think they they probably would appeal to different readers. One is written from the heart. One is written much more from the head. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wrote both of them is that when I first arrived in Japan in 1987, after my first year there, I brought out a book about how Japan seems to a foreigner after one year called The Lady and the Monk. And so I was barely out of my 20s. And that was a book about falling in love with a culture, a person who became my wife, and a whole way of life. And I thought, having written that book in the springtime of my life, it would be interesting 30 years later to write a book about how Japan looks to somebody who's been there 31 years and who's mm -hmm. in the autumn uh, of his life. And I think everybody knows it's relatively easy <laughs> to fall in love, but it's quite difficult to stay in love. And staying in love comes with different blessings and, and revelations and challenges. And uh, it's never hard to be in the giddy, giddy state when you're on honeymoon. But how about when you've been with somebody and with a foreign culture for 30 years, how do you find your romance and excitement there? And I, I think I still... I live in it on in Japan on a tourist visa, and after 32 years there, I'm still as surprised and uh, intrigued and exhilarated every day when I take a walk around my neighborhood as I was when I first arrived and everything was new. But of course, it, it takes different forms and takes place in different places. And so when I first arrived, I was in the ancient capital of Kyoto, which has 17 world heritage sites and is ringed by 1,600 temples. And it's not very um, difficult to be entranced by that. Now I live in a completely synthetic Western neighborhood in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere that has not a single shrine or temple. So I'm interested in how do I find my transport in what looks like the most boring place on earth. And um, I'm guessing many a reader knows the equivalent in, in her life. So I thought it would be fun to come at this lifelong fascination from two opposite angles. In Kyoto, they sometimes say every reverse has a reverse. <laughs> uh, and the, the great uh, scientist, physicist, Niels Bohr, once delivered this really intriguing sentence, which is the reverse of a great truth is also a great truth. And so I wrote these two contradictory books as a way to explore that idea. Whether any reader is going to be as fascinated as I was remains to be seen, but it was certainly <laughs> a fun exercise and, and a way to go off on a journey that I'd never been on before. You know, given uh, what you were just talking about, it reminded me of, of, uh, of something I, I heard in, in one of your TED Talks, and I think I'm going to do a first for, for me and this podcast. I'm going to end the podcast by quoting you, <laughs> because, it's, it's because you. I really enjoyed this line. So you said this, and, and it, I think it, it immediately was 
I was understanding everything you said. Uh, you said that travel for me is a little bit like being in love because suddenly all your settings are at the setting marked on. And that was the end of the quote. Um, and I, I felt like by this sentence you had, and I, I think this is why readers keep coming back to you and they will pick up these books because it's through words like this that you're able to completely be transparent and tell them this is something that I know that you are also feeling. I'm just putting it into words for you. You know, at least that's that's what I felt when when I when I heard that sentence. What a beautiful conclusion! Thank you, Lakshya. Yeah, I can't imagine you. a better way to end this. You, you this was not planned. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah, I just wrote it down anyway because I I wanted to keep that quote with me. Oh, fantastic! Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora storytelling and creative learning platform in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.